This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Talking today to John Straussball, author of a new book, New York City During the Civil War. John, I I've read this book by now twice, and it, it is truly a, a illuminating as well as entertaining. And why don't we start with the Civil War, the opening of the Civil War from the point of view of New York City, April 12, 13, 1861. And how does the news arrive? And, and it's an opening scene in your book, and you mention both Walt Whitman and... Uh, some of the leading bankers in town and talk about th- their reaction and then try and talk about the city itself in 1861. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of a place is it? And the what's the population and the degree of mob violence and so forth? Eventually, we will get in the course of the conversation to the great draft riots of the summer of 1863. But but set the scene for us on the day that the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter. It came as no surprise to anyone. Uh, Lincoln had sent ships. The ships he sent to Fort Sumter were sent out of New York Harbor. So everybody knew something was coming. The firing on Fort Sumter started before dawn. Uh, that was a Friday, Friday, April 12th. Um, the first telegraph news started reaching the city Friday afternoon. Um, what they would do then, news, the newspapers would take the telegraph news and post it on big posting, poster boards outside their offices, which were mostly on what was called Printing House Square, right across from City Hall. It's gone now. So people are standing in Printing House Square late that afternoon and that evening. They're reading the news that war has begun. But it's a Friday night, it's April, it's a nice night, so they're going out. Uh, People went to the theater. Uh, Walt Whitman went to the opera um, uh, at the Academy of Music on 14th Street. And people were at the minstrel shows and they were out at the restaurants. So Walt's walking home, Uh, it's near midnight, he's walking down Broadway, and he sees the newsboys tearing up and down Broadway selling late editions and shouting, war has begun, Sumter fired upon. So that's Walt's first inkling that it has happened. Meanwhile, very nearby, a bunch of businessmen were meeting. Nobody feared the Civil War more than New York's business community because they did a tremendous amount of business with the South because of the cotton trade and were holding a tremendous amount of unpaid Southern debt. It was $150 million in 1860, which is $4.5 billion, something like that today. And they knew the South would default if there was a war. So they're having this meeting to try to decide how to influence the South and influence Washington not to go to war. A guy bursts in the room, gives them the news from Fort Sumter, and reportedly one of the guys at the table throws his hands in the air and says, my God, we are ruined. (laughs) All right. Now, talk about the whole city in, in 1861. I mean, they're not only the bankers, but many pro-Southern sympathizers, yeah, yeah. and the and there are more Germans living in New York than or almost as many as are living in Vienna and mm-hmm, Berlin. Mm-hmm. There is a great deal of racial tension, 
not only escaped slaves from the uh, South, but also immigrants from around the world. Give us the whole, you know, mise-en-scene, New York, and, and why you say that it is, which you say in the book, that it, the, it's almost a, the, the whole clash, clash of the war is, is you, we have it in miniature in New York. New Yorkers were fighting their own civil war during the Civil War. I guess we should start with New York City was just Manhattan at that point. The other boroughs were still separate. It wasn't even all of Manhattan. It was just the bottom half. From 42nd Street up, things got pretty lonesome. And yet there were more than 800,000 people there and usually about 100,000 guests as well. So you have 900,000 people packed below, say, 23rd Street. So that's that's by far the biggest city in the country. Philadelphia is the next, and it's 600,000. Um, by comparison, Washington is about 75,000 people at that point, so it's, it's tiny. It's the biggest, it's the busiest, it's the richest, it's the dirtiest, it's the most dangerous city in the country. Um, if Washington is the nation's political capital, New York is the capital in just about every other way that matters. All the banks are in New York. There's more banks in New York City with more capital than the entire South. Um, all the merchandising is in New York City. All the It was the biggest factory town. We don't think of Manhattan as a factory town, but in fact, it was the biggest factory town. It was the biggest and busiest seaport. So, uh, it, And it was the media center, the New York newspapers, uh, Horace Greeley's uh, Tribune and uh, James Gordon Bennett's Herald were national newspapers. They went out around the country. The trains took them out around the country. It's immensely important. It's a much more important place then, I think, than it is now, because now, you know, power and money and all have been uh, dispersed more around the country. Uh, but at the time, it was all concentrated in New York City. I say it was a city at war with itself because of the uh, of the cotton trade, basically. Cotton had been nothing in 1800. I think the U.S. shipped out 500, yeah, 500 million uh, pounds of cotton. By 1860, it was over 3 billion pounds of cotton. It was most of the world's cotton was coming out of the Deep South. New York had a very intimate relationship with that Deep South. New York banks, because all the banks were in New York, New York banks funded the spread of plantations across the South. They spread across the South because of the cotton gin, the spread of the cotton gin at the end of the 1700s. Cotton had been hand-picked until then, and it was re just furiously laborious work. So um, everybody's buying uh, plantations. They're all borrowing the money from the banks. Um, it's also that the, the spread of the plantations fuses the relationship of the South to slavery because you still need armies of field workers to pick the cotton out in the fields. So slavery, which had been kind of dying out in the South at the end of the 1700s, be just because it wasn't useful, becomes enormously useful and, and very much set in the, in the Southern mind. New York merchants are selling the plantation owners all their goods, uh, everything from the pianos in their parlors to their plows to the clothes they're putting on their, their slaves. And one of New York's mayors got rich uh, mass-producing clothes for Southern slave owners to put, the, put on their slaves. They're also selling them, I mean, the plantation yeah. ladies in general, and they're sending them, selling them fine find goods from Paris. Because the slave ship, I mean, those cotton ships are going over from, and, and about 40% of them are going out of New York Harbor. 
They're sailing to England mostly. They're dropping the cotton off, and now they're empty, so they get filled up with European lace and parasols and fine shoes and, and musical instruments. And they're bringing them back to the merchants in New York who are selling them to the, southern, the fine southern gentlemen and their ladies. I think you say somewhere in your book that the southerners are bringing... They're spending $200 million a year yeah. buying stuff in New York. They treated New York as their home away from home. They'd come live here all summer because it was nicer here than it was down south. They would bring their slaves with them. Although slave, slavery had been banished in New York State, it was still legal if you were from the south and you, had a, you were legally the owner of slaves, you could bring them with you. So slaves didn't disappear in New York City. They just weren't local slaves. So besides the shipping companies and the merchants and the banks, the restaurateurs, the hotels, the, the gambling houses, the theaters, the bordellos, all depended to a certain degree and sometimes to a great degree on the southern trade, on the plantation owners. How was the election of Lincoln in, in 1860, how was that received in, in New York? <laughs> The majority of New Yorkers were hostile to him from before he was elected. When I say that I, that I think the city was at war with itself, there was a, the majority of New Yorkers, because one way or another, their jobs depended on cotton and on the South and on slavery, were very pro-Southern, were very anti-abolitionist. But there was a small minority of very vocal, visible, and influential abolitionists in town, like Horace Greeley, like Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, um, who were two of the most famous abolitionists in the country and then two of the most hated figures in the South. But that's a that's a minority, but it, but it is a very important minority because they bring Lincoln to Cooper Union in February of 1860. He gives that, he's not even a dark horse yet. He's so unknown that the New York newspapers are calling him Abram Lincoln and or A. Lincoln because they don't know his first name. But he makes that speech and he gets his picture taken by Matthew Brady. And that picture, that portrait and that speech printed go out around the country. And they're really kind of the nation's first introduction to this darkest of dark horses, Abraham Lincoln. And in a few months, he's uh, nominated. From the second he's nominated, uh, the entire South says, if you elect that guy, we're leaving. We're out. Um, we're, we will take that as tantamount to a, a declaration of war against us because they were convinced that Lincoln was an abolitionist and that he was going to end slavery in the South. But he wasn't. No, no, not at all. And he said over and over and over again very clearly, I'm not going to do that. I don't think as president I would have the constitutional right to do that. So the war is not about slavery in the South. It was never about that, except for the abolitionists, the, the true abolitionists. They always thought it was. But nobody else did. The war was more about spreading slavery to that vast area of new land that in, from the Mississippi West, um, which had opened up in, just in the decades before 1860. The question was whether, as those territories got organized as states, are they going to be free or are they going to be slave? The South, of course, wanted them to be slaves because that would slave states that would give them more slave states in Congress, more you know, more clout. Northerners wanted them to be free states, but not so much because they had, in general, because they had any moral qualms about slavery. They were just worried that if those territories became slave, then free workers from the East would not be able to go out there and get good jobs. So they wanted to leave them free for themselves, you know, not as a statement against slavery. It wasn't a moral statement at all. I mean, it's fascinating how many of the topics that you pick up in this book are echoing in, in our amazing. own 
I mean, you don't, we don't have to dwell on it, but I just hope that people are listening to you talk pick up on on those echoes. I mean, because it's racial class tension. It's also employment, jobs, yep. who's taking whose jobs from home. I mean, I mean the the dock workers in New York uh, are thinking that the slave labor is going to come in and take their jobs. Yeah. Uh, and, they, and they were encouraged to think that by, among others, James Gordon Bennett, the, the newspaper editor, who was very pro-South. That New York had some of the most viciously racist and, and outrageously pro-slavery newspapers in the country. Name some of them. There was one called The Day Book. It was begun by and, and published for the cotton merchants in the city. So it's totally, you know, a pro-Southern newspaper. But the Herald was it well as well. And the Herald was quite a, a large and established. It was the It and the Tribune were the two biggest papers in the country. But the Herald couldn't talk about African-Americans without using some slur or another. It was just they couldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves to write about black people without using some insult. And that went on for decades. All right. But the I happen to know this because I was a for a long period of time, the editor of Harper's Magazine. The first editor of Harper's Magazine was a man named Henry Raymond, mm -hmm. who was also the first editor of the New York Times. And who was an assistant to Horace Greeley. And what was his relation to Lincoln? He ended up being Lincoln's campaign manager in the 1864 campaign. He was very supportive of Lincoln. See, And that's this is part of that dichotomy in New York. You have these people who were who made Lincoln president, frankly. I mean, he just barely got into the White House. But um, it's been said, and I think quite accurately, that without people like Henry Raymond, Horace Greeley, and some of the other Republicans, uh, Thurlow Weed and some of the other Republicans in New York, he never would have made it into the White House. And the Times, when Henry Raymond started it, was a very pro-Lincoln, stuck with Lincoln when during the war, when everybody was complaining, and, and, and everybody, I mean, even Horace Greeley was com and, and Reverend Beecher were complaining about the war. The war was, you know, the war went very badly for Lincoln for the first two years anyway. But Raymond stuck with him throughout it all. He was a very much uh, a mainstream, solid Lincolnian. You say the city is, is filled with contradiction. I mean, no city contributes more to the war, no city does more harm to the cause of the war, and so on. I mean, give us a couple of those. Being the biggest city in the country, of course it had, you know, he knew that if he was going to war, he had to have New York on his side in one way or another. He also knew he couldn't count on that because the majority of New Yorkers felt about him just as hostile as anybody in the South did. But, so, but some really interesting things start to happen. The banks, the same banks that had been funding the spread of plantations for, for decades and, you know, and contributing in a mighty way to, the, to causing the war by doing that, uh, instantly send him a tremendous amount of money for his war chest. The, the cynical interpretation of that, and I think when you're talking about New York banks, you can never be too cynical, is that they were hoping that by f putting tons of money in his war chest, this unpleasantness would be over very quickly, and they'd get back to doing business with the South and be able to collect that you know, $150 million in debt from the South. Talk about that. I mean, you, you start off by saying on April... 13th, the banks, merchants, to think they're ruined. And for 
six months or so, the, yes, the economy goes down and, and certain business disappears, but it is replaced yeah. with arms manufacture. I mean, and we, so and in fact, it's a boom for, for the city. For all the crying that they did at the beginning, um, you know, in the spring, by the end of summer, at the end of the summer of 1860, New York has bounced back in, in a big way and then goes booming through the rest of the war. They, um, shipping in, instantly disappears because of the loss of cotton, but they figure out other things to do with shipping and the waterfront comes back but because they're fitting out and building warships for the Union Navy. Brooks Brothers uh, gets contracts for, you know, who knows how many thousands and thousands of uniforms for the Union Army. The horse, the big horse barns that were in Manhattan back then, because you needed a lot of horses for your trolleys and your buses and stuff, uh, they start selling horses, all sorts of horses, and many of them were half dead when they were selling them, to the Union cavalry. They're making arms. The Squib and Pfizer are making medicine and bandages out in Brooklyn. They replaced the cotton that they had lost with new commodities from the West. So it opens up the West in a real way to New York City. They're bringing in lumber. They're bringing in cattle and hogs. Um, they, at, at, by 1861, they're slaughtering more hogs in Manhattan than they are in Chicago, uh, for instance. And that, so that's a lot of hogs they, they had to be. Um, so they, they diversify. They, they look to the West. They have their, many of them are profiting tremendously from, what they, from a lot of inferior goods that they're selling to the Union Army. And um, it creates a whole new class of millionaires in the city called the shoddy aristocracy. And this is brand new money. And like brand new money, they're spending it on themselves. They're, they're, they're closing their vests with diamond buttons and they're wearing gold and jewelry and furs. The old money is appalled. But they're, they're building some of the mansions that lined Fifth Avenue from the Civil War on. And also they're speculating on gold because gold always vacillates in times of war. They're speculating on Wall Street, which is obviously the, the center of in, investment in the country. So they go, they go booming through the war. For all the complaining, the war on balance is very good for not just for the businessmen and the bankers, but for all the workers because it's providing, you know, they're making jobs. Bakers were baking seven days a week, 24 hours to supply hardtack for the Navy and, and things like that. So it, the war, they, New York did very well during the war. Well, let's get to the dramatic event in, in, in the book, which is the, are the draft riots yeah. of Ju July 1863. Explain the run-up. Explain what, you know, describe what happened. I mean, it's anarchy. The city is almost burned down. Yeah. But fill in the blanks. You know, we call it the draft riots, and the draft, the institution of the draft, was the the immediate spark that caused the riot. But there was uh, several years of, of grievances among the white workers in New York City and elsewhere in the North, and most of the urban centers in the North, that led up to it. Um, they had been, uh, there, there had been a big depression in 1857, the panic of 1857, and, and uh, at least 100,000 workers in New York were laid off. Well, they, they weren't laid off, they were fired. You didn't get laid off in those days. So they lost their jobs. They were just getting them back when the war starts, and now they lose their jobs again for a while because the waterfront shuts down and the hotels and all that. 
So they're, they're not in the best of moods. Wartime inflation doubles the price of, of everything they buy. Their, their rent, the, a loaf of bread, a, you know, a wheel of cheese. But their wages stagnate or even go down a little because there's so much work that, you know, so the, the wages go down. So they're not happy about that. Then Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, and they're not happy about that because now he's done what they said all along he was going to do. He has freed the slaves. The slaves are going to come up and take their jobs away, they think, so they're, they're very unhappy. Um, they start um, uh, abandoning the army, just running away from the army when he does that because they thought they were fighting to preserve the Union. Now they're fighting to free the slaves, and they had never bargained for that, and, they ne- and that was the last thing they wanted to do. So they're deserting in droves. Now, because of all the desertions and because volunteerism has plummeted during the first two years of the war, um, he has to institute the draft. This is in the spring of 1863. One of the conditions of the draft is that you can buy your way out. If your name comes up, you can buy your way out for $300. $300 was the average worker's annual salary in 1860. So none of those guys are going to be, but the rich guys are all buying their way out. So now it's, it's, they called it a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. So they're really unhappy by the time that uh, the first draft is pulled in July. It's pulled on a Saturday. They, it was a, a wooden drum that they turned and then reached in and just pulled your name out, and people called it the Wheel of Misfortune. If, so they drew the names on Saturday. Sunday, which was the workers' only day off, they're sitting in the bars and the taverns, they're drinking, they're grumbling, they're getting more and more upset about all this. And Monday morning, they start to write. They go to the draft office where those first names were pulled and destroy it. And then they just go crazy all over the city for the rest of the week. Basically, for a week, the city is completely in a state of anarchy. Um, they're burning buildings. They're grabbing anybody they can. Of course, if any any black person is caught on the street, they're, they are beaten at the very least and quite often murdered in hideous ways. And then their bodies defiled after they're dead. It was n- nightmarish what was going on. Hung from lampposts. Hung from lampposts or from trees, um, uh, crushed under paving stones, just the worst. Um, if, you were, if they thought you were a Republican, that is a, a pro-Lincoln person, they would at the very least trash your house. So it's not just a draft riot. And, you know, you can, and it, one historian has called it a citywide workers' revolt, and I think that's more accurate. These grievances have been building up in these people for at least two years, and, that, and they just boiled over. It was the draft was the last straw. It's still the deadliest rioting in American history. The official numbers in the newspapers, the official number in the newspapers was 119 killed in the riots. Most New Yorkers at the time said that was very low, and that was the low published number. It was hundreds more, probably. And we'll never know. It's still a matter of debate among historians. Lincoln basically has to use martial law to bring the city under order. He floods the city with 10,000 troops, which is, you know, that's a very large army presence. And they're everywhere on the streets. Things quiet down. And the the great irony uh, for me of it is that at the same time that he's having to institute martial law, William Tweed and Tammany Hall, the Democratic political machine, that's Boss Tweed, Boss Tweed comes up with an ingenious plan. He raises money, raises a fund, and any New Yorker whose name is pulled in the draft 
can apply to the fund, and the fund will pay his $300 to buy him out for him. The result is that for the rest of the war, from, from that point to the end of the war, basically no New Yorker, not one New Yorker who didn't want to be in uniform, ended up in uniform because William Tweed bought him out. So he, he created this whole bureaucracy to keep New Yorkers out of Lincoln's army, basically. I, I just find that amazing. <laughs> Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall. There are a couple of other characters in your book that strike me as uh, extraordinary. One of them is um, Dan Sickles. He was also a Tammany Hall guy. But talk about his career, his relations with Lincoln and with the war. Dan's one of the great scalawags of the 19th century, a century that was full of them. And he's amazing. One of the things amazing about Dan is his longevity. Dan goes from, he's born around 1819. He dies in 1914, so he's around that long. Um, as a young man, he's mentored by Lorenzo da Ponte. Lorenzo da Ponte um, had been um, uh, he had uh, been a friend of Casanova's. He wrote the libretti for several of Mozart's operas. Then he gets his he's runs out of Europe because he's got creditors on his heels. Comes to New York City, has what is in effect the, one of the first Bohemian households in New York City before the term Bohemian was in use. So Dan knows this guy. So through through Lorenzo da Ponte, Dan is connected back to Casanova and Mozart. At the other end, when Dan dies in 1914, he's living in a house on Lower Fifth Avenue with uh, the the new Bohemians, the Bohemians of the 1910s, throwing soirees in the in the apartment above his. He dies two months after the Lincoln Memorial has started, and two months before the start of World War One. So this is a guy who, in one, in in a sense goes from Casanova to World War I. And he creates trouble that whole time. He's, he, he's an amazing troublemaker. He gets, Tammany Hall gets him sent to uh, Albany, the state legislature in Albany. As a young man, he becomes a ward, you know, into the Tammany Hall machine. Um, his father was involved as well. Uh, if you, there was an awful lot of, uh, you know, the Democrats were um, quite dominant in, in New York City at the time. So if you wanted anything, you went to Tammany Hall. It just it ran the city. So uh, he went to Tammany Hall. They, uh, they liked him. They, they got him elected. He goes to Albany, takes his whore to Albany with him and shocks everybody in Albany. He goes to London with future President Buchanan, who was at that point the, um, the, minister, the U.S. minister to London in the court of St. James, and takes his whore there and allegedly introduces her to Queen Victoria. And introduces her to Queen Victoria as Miss Bennett, as in James Gordon Bennett. So from then on, the Herald hates Stan Sickles. And there was also a rumor that James Gordon Bennett Jr. was actually Dan Sickles' son. So Bennett had no love for Sickles at all. Then Sickles, uh, Tammany gets him elected to Congress. So now he's in Washington. One day he learns that his wife is, is dallying with one of the handsomest young men in Washington, Philip Barton Key son of Francis Scott Keyes. Dan hears about this, goes out on the street, Lafayette Square in Washington, shoots him dead like a dog in the street so that he, he murders Francis Scott Key's son. The trial is here in New York. He gets off. Um, <laughs> it said, people like to say it's because his lawyers used the, um, one of the very first times that anybody used a temporary insanity plea but it was a jury of 12 married white men. They were not going to convict uh, you know, a married man of anything for shooting the wife's lover. 
So now he's back in New York. The war starts. Um, he's out of Congress, and he raises his own brigade, the Excelsior Brigade, because you, you, at the time, the, the U.S. Army was tiny. It's all out west. A lot of the officers were Southerners, so they're going to go fight for the Confederacy. So the Union Army is taking anything it can get. Uh, at the start of the war. And you could raise a brigade, you could raise uh, a squadron, anything you wanted, and call yourself, if you raised a brigade, you get to call yourself a brigade, a brigadier general. It's the kind of thing Trump would do. Yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? And they're said to be the scum of the earth. Um, a lot of, there were a lot of units that were said to be the scum of the earth that came out of New York City. So uh, now he's got his own brigade. Dan has a- absolutely zero m- military experience, which was true of many of the officers in the Union Army. And it's one of the reasons the Union Army kept getting its, its butt kicked for the first two years of the Civil War. The Confederate Army was smaller and less well-equipped, but uh, more experienced and, and, and knew what they were doing. Um, these guys didn't. They were called political officers, uh, rather, because they, you know, they hadn't even seen West Point, let alone graduated from West Point. But Dan is a very aggressive, very uh, enthusiastic leader. Uh, he gets most of his men killed during the war, but they, they love him because he's out there inspiring them. All right, so now it's Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg. Closest battle to New York. It's 200 miles away. That was the closest battlefield to New York City. On the first day, Dan disobeys orders, leads his men out well out in front of the Union line. So he has now disarrayed the Union line. And the, the actual officers and real military men in, in, on the Union line are in a panic. They're scrambling to reform the line while Dan marches his troops out in front. Of course, they get slaughtered by the Confederates because they're out in, where they shouldn't be. Um, the, the Army's official opinion later is that he came within an ace of losing the Battle of Gettysburg for the Union just by doing that. He get a cannonball shatters his right leg. He gets carried to the hospital tent. They amputate the leg. At the time, what they would do with amputated limbs was just pile them up outside the, uh, the tent and then throw them away or bury them or whatever later. Dan wasn't going to let anything like that happen to his leg. He had it boxed up and sent to Washington to the Army Medical Museum. And to this day, in Washington, you can go visit Dan's leg. In, 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 it's, now it's the National Health and something museum. And he used to go visit it all the time when he was in Washington, go visit his leg. After the war, he's still friends with Lincoln, though. Lincoln liked him a lot. Dan, Dan was a likable guy, uh, you know, as a lot of scoundrels are. He made, a lot, he made a lot of enemies, but he made a lot of friends. And Lincoln always liked him. Mrs. Lincoln liked him, and she didn't like a lot of people. So after the war, General Grant also kind of adopts Dan and likes Dan, and Dan helps General Grant get elected president. Now Grant owes him a posting somewhere because Dan has been very helpful. And he tries to send him to Mexico as the ambassador to Mexico. And Dan says, no way, I'm not going to that backwater. So Grant, who made several woodheaded appointments in his time as president, sends Dan to Spain, where Dan instantly almost gets us into a war with Spain over Cuba because we wanted Cuba, Spain still had it. And Dan didn't think there was any reason why we didn't just take Cuba, um, which didn't endear him to anyone in the Spanish government. 
Dan comes back, he gets in trouble here, there, and, the, and, and elsewhere for the, over the next 20, 30 years. He does do one really good thing. He's one of the, because he has a personal interest in it, he is one of the people most instrumental in having the Gettysburg area be turned into a national battlefield park. Um, but he, do, he does that, you know, also because it's a monument to him in his mind, because he thinks he won the Battle of Gettysburg, being Dan. Some of my heroes are in New York during the, uh, the Civil War. Herman Melville is, is one of them. Walt Whitman is, enough, is another. What, what becomes of them during this? And also Stephen Foster, the, yeah. the songwriter. What, what happens to those people? Interesting stuff for all three of them. Melville, by the time the war starts, he's past the point where he's a popular novelist. Um, he had written his South Sea adventures like Taipei and Omu, um, which sold well and, and were very popular. But then he starts writing the stranger stuff, um, Moby Dick. No, nobody liked Moby Dick when it came out. So now he's, he's past his prime as a, as a popular novelist by the time the war starts. He's writing poetry. Nobody's reading that either. In some despair, he goes to, when Lincoln is elected, he goes to Washington to try to get a posting to, uh, he wants to be an ambassador in uh, Italy, somewhere in Italy. Um, but he's, he's, he's a writer. He's very diffident. He's very shy, so he doesn't get anywhere. Um, he eventually comes back to the city and, and lives in the city for a very long time, um, but dies unknown, unread, and is not rediscovered, really, until the 1920s. And that's when Melville becomes the Melville we know. Whitman goes to work volunteers for various military hospitals. He had a younger brother who was in the Union Army, um, was wounded in battle. He reads in the Herald a long list of the wounded and sees his younger brother's name, rushes from Brooklyn down to Washington, finds out that his brother is okay, but he sees all these other thousands of young men um, wounded in in battle in all these hospitals, and he becomes a kind of volunteer one-man USO. He brings them baskets of fruit, he sits and holds their hands, he reads to them, he comforts them. Um, he's not gaining. He's he's making no money doing this. So he asks his friends and and associates up here in New York um, to send him whatever they can. Uh, he asks a friend, James Redpath, um, who was another interesting character in New York. And and Redpath at this point is um, with the Transcendentalists up in uh, in New England, and he goes around to them asking them for money to send to Walt so that Walt can be going to the hospitals. They're aware that Walt is possibly and probably a homosexual. So they, they have misgivings about his wanting to be among all these young men. So they do not send him the money. But Walt makes it through the war and finally gets a government job. And he's, you know, now he's working for the government. He publishes Leaves of Grass before the war. 1855, though. yeah. Now the war is over. Uh, we'll, we'll skip to that because okay. the... Uh, and there's a great turnout for Lincoln's body after yeah. he's shot yeah. in, in uh, April 1865. So the, the, there's affection on the part of the city for him at, at his death. One historian looking back at it called it a hippodrome of sorrow, by which he meant that there was a certain 
falseness to it uh, that he thought. And this is a city that had rebelled against Lincoln, had been hostile to Lincoln, had never voted for Lincoln. New York City or Brooklyn, both times in 1860 and 1864, voted against him by more than two to one. So these were not Lincoln. New York was not a Lincoln city. Um, and yet, hundreds of thousands of folks turned out for the funeral. Uh, if you want to take the cynical point of view, it was a lovely day. Um, you could get New Yorkers out for any kind of a, a parade, a procession. They always came out in great numbers. So they were going to come out anyway. When Grant died, um, some 20 years later, far more people turned out for, for his funeral. Um, Grant was much more popular in New York City at the end of the war than Lincoln was even after his death or ever had been. Because to New Yorkers, Ulysses S. Grant was the man who won the Civil War, not Lincoln. They didn't give Lincoln any, much credit for that. So it's a strange thing that they all turn out, and the, and it's this big, solemn event. But you do have to ask yourself how many of them were, you know, sincerely sorry to see. It. I mean, they were shocked he was the first president who was assassinated. I, you know, but New York after the war becomes an even more powerful city. The, the capital of capital, yeah. I think, is a phrase, and so. The shoddy aristocracy becomes the Gilded Age, exactly. and, and the great boom of, of American, the industrial behemoth and the, and the railroad barons, and, and that's all. So the victory goes to, to New York in that sense. It really does. For all the complaining and worrying and rioting and that they had done about it. The war on balance was very good for New York City. They came out of it, they had amassed all that capital during the war. They had diversified. They had reached out west. So, you know, when we think of how the west was won, you know, on one level, it was the cowboys, but in a real way, it was the New York bankers and railroad and real estate guys who won the west because they, they financed the spread to the west. So New York, and through the Gilded Age, New York just booms and, and is well on the way by the end of the century to becoming the capital of the world that it becomes in the 20th century. Well, that's a wonderful place to end this conversation. John, this has been a, a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, really, I really enjoy listening to you talk, and it's a, it's a fine book to read. It's a much ple- as much pleasure as listening to you talk. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. We've been talking with John Strasbaugh about his book, The History of New York City During the Civil War, and it is a uh, truly fun to read. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.